Hello and welcome to the Translation Company Talk, a weekly podcast show focusing on translation services and the language industry. The Translation Company Talk covers topics of interest for professionals engaged in the business of translation, localization, transcription, interpreting, and language technology. The Translation Company Talk is sponsored by YYZ Translations. Your host is Sultan Ghaznawi with today's episode. Welcome to this episode of the Translation Company Talk podcast. I'm Sultan Ghaznawi, your host. Today we will be covering an often overlooked topic. The title of this episode is Account Management for Language Companies, which in essence means how to keep your existing clients happy and improve your business with them. To talk to me about this subject, I've invited Georgia Roaming from Geo Group Translation Services. Georgia Roaming is a recognized speaker, business leader, and communications specialist with over 30 years of experience in sales. She is the founder of the Geo Group Corporation, a foreign language services agency based in Wisconsin. Her primary responsibility is helping businesses communicate with multilingual audiences in every medium. With disciplines in the advertising, marketing, and video production industries, Georgia combines her experiences to localize client messages for our global economy. Georgia has received recognition for her volunteer work in various industries. Her company is a founding member of the Association of Language Companies, or ALC. She has been a past president for the ALC, the Madison Advertising Federation, and the International Television Association. Currently, she is a trustee for the Madison Advertising Foundation, and she contributes to the Women's Business Development Center, or WBDC. The GEO Group is a women-owned company nationally certified by the Women's Business Enterprise National Certification, or WBENC. Many years ago, Georgia earned a United States gold medal in figure skating. Her individual determination, commitment, and competitiveness are major contributors to her success in the sales profession. Georgia, welcome to the Translation Company Talk podcast show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be with you today. Likewise. I'm so pleased that you're here. Uh, Please share some words about yourself. Tell us what you do at the moment and where you're located. Well, I am the owner of the GEO Group, and we are a full-service language services agency Mm -hmm. employing 14 people. And now they're all working remotely, of course. Um, But we get together for Zoom cocktail meetings like ALC started, and I I stole that idea. uh, Happy hours. Yes, to keep in touch. (laughs) So we just celebrated 30 years of service, which that tells you how old I am. Congratulations. Yes, thank you. That's Um, a milestone to be celebrated. Well, anyone who runs their own business knows what it takes and all the hours and hard work and uh, the ins and out of running a business. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it was a lot of work, but we're happy that we're here. That's a monumental accomplishment, Georgia. Tell me about your company. It has come a long way. How did it look like when you started it until now? Um, the GEO Group started out as a full-service advertising agency. We had, um, and I say we because this will include my husband, uh, we had experience in communications communication tools that we needed with a particular emphasis on video production. Okay. And then it evolved into translation, how and when? So in 1995, um, President Bill Clinton passed the NAFTA, 
Act. And right. NAFTA for the tree, uh, free trade agreement, um, the GEO group took advantage of that knowing that it was going to be uh, compliance for all of our Midwest manufacturers to translate all of their information into Canadian French right. and Mexican Spanish. And wow. so my husband said, you know, this opportunity to offer foreign language translation services is huge. And I said to him, you must be kidding. I don't know anything about <laughs> languages except for eight years of French in college. That's okay. it. Yeah. So um, we are professional salespeople and we launched a massive campaign, a sales campaign where we created a brochure for ourselves and either myself and a salesperson or my husband and a salesperson would go out and we went to meet in person every single manufacturer in the state of Wisconsin to introduce our services. And that just catapulted us into the language services industry. Well, congratulations on, on that decision because that was the right decision. And we are looking at globalization happening right in, in, in front of our eyes today, actually. And you, you were there when it started, I think. We were so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. So how we did that was we hired a linguist from the University of Wisconsin who had a wealth of knowledge about the industry. And we relied on her and she exposed us to ATA, the American Translators Association. Right. And she was a great source for finding professional contractors. And again, that's your product line. That's absolutely. Yeah. So um, in that case, that was the story that transformed our company. And now 99% of our business is language services. And we're just like you said, we were there at the right time. A hundred percent. So how is your business split now in terms of language services? Do you just do translation or there's also interpreting component as well? Well, I hope the folks that are listening today have a lot of patience with me when it comes to um, interpreting because only 1% of our business is interpreting. And um, then we break it down. Translation is the highest. We have audio video services. We have two in-house studios with voiceover capabilities and subtitling, and that's 12% of our business. And the other thing too is desktop publishing in-house and IT in-house for our localization. Now we felt very strongly about in-house services because that allowed us to control quality and control timelines. Um, we come from that generation where my husband and I felt like working nights and weekends was really what you had to do. <laughs> Yeah, uh, to really run a, a great business. And you and I, we're going to talk about customer service today. Absolutely. And being together and being available for those folks, uh, that really launched us also into um, also into the industry. So we'll get to the, the subject of our discussion in a moment. But, uh, Georgia, let me ask you this. Since you have started um, your organization, or let's say when it pivoted towards translation from advertising, how have things changed in this industry and how would you describe these changes affecting your company and, and how you adapt it? You're going to really um, be surprised at the way that I talk with you today because I'm kind of a list 
person and I'm a bullet point person. So I'll give you the answers to these questions. Um, <laughs> Please do. I, I know. The industry has changed in these ways that, you know, this is what I feel. So the first one is increased competition. From 2001, which is, you know, the 9-11, all the way to the recession of 2008, we saw that large global countries, large global agencies made their way um, into the Midwest and to markets that were underserved. So they left the East Coast clients and the West Coast clients, and they started to come in to call on Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, Missouri, and found that there was a, a manufacturing market here that was pretty much untapped. So then before you knew it, our sales efforts changed. And so... I think one of the funniest things about this is that since we had some mature clients, our clients would call and say, hey, Georgia, guess which global agency called on me today? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it was you could just feel, feel that. So the very first answer to your question about how the industry has changed is really the increased competition. Before we were pretty much you know, left alone to serve the Midwest. And, and that's where the business growth came. The second change is technology. This one, I don't know, do we need to discuss a lot about, you know, technology? Because in the past mm -hmm. 10 years, um, I don't know, it just has, it, it makes my head spin as far as the technology for the language services industry. So how does that affect us? First of all, it um, affects us financially. Technology is expensive. And so if we look at the technology that's out there today, I mean, we really have to ask, uh, what do our clients need? Uh, what does this technology do? Um, what's going to be any downtime that this technology is going to have for us? And will the technology help us compete against those big globals, like I mentioned earlier? So if it decreases our profits, that's the second reason why we hesitate to go into it. But of course, we kind of have to. And the third reason is competitive advantage. So if we want to keep up in this industry, I mean, technology has to be a topic. And then the third is digital marketing. You know, whether you like it or you don't, good or bad, uh, the way we find our prospects right now is totally different than we did it in the olden days. Again, telling you right. how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> we, we all are from that time. Oh, my gosh. So the days of selling in person are, you know, temporarily on hold, and that could maybe be permanent. The relationships, you know, are different. Um, but I will tell you that, the digital marketing now, um, I, I don't know, you know, it, what we're trying to do is become a relationship-based company with the, the uh, clients that we have so that we're building relationships that our competitors can't steal. Because imagine in digital marketing that they're constantly, you know, the big global agencies are constantly putting messages out and there's blogs and there's podcasts and, and all these things. And our research firms in the industry are very active. 
all the potential translation buyers, language buyers are getting bombarded with this information. So our selling technique has really had to change. So in summary, the industry has changed in increased competition, advances in technology, and digital marketing. And those are only a few. <laughs> wow. <laughs> those are my top three. Wow. wow. You've, you've observed changes firsthand. Uh, let's actually zoom in on our uh, subject of discussion for today, uh, Georgia, which is how to keep your clients happy. Please give me a high-level view of what do you do to keep them happy and coming back for more translating and interpreting business for you. We are a mom-and-pop company in the Midwest, and our corporate personality matches our manufacturers and our creative services and our healthcare clients that we have here. So we keep our clients happy by becoming a sub. I want to say this again, sustaining resource. And I hope that everybody listening today writes this one down and actually practices how to be a sustaining resource, sustaining resource. Can, so, can you elaborate? Like, what uh, do you mean by a sustaining resource? Yes, I think one of the questions that you're going to ask me is about a high level view about becoming a sustaining resource. You know, I'm having trouble with the word sustaining. Have you noticed that? <laughs> we all do. <laughs> okay. So first of all, in a new relationship, you want to develop the motto that we can do it. And when you do that, you're demonstrating that you're providing, of course, we all provide high quality, on time, delivery, on budget. But the sustaining research has or resource has to go beyond that. So when you... Say you can do it and you can do it builds trust. And once your client um, feels that trust and then you take them to stage two and that's going to be top of the mind awareness. Now, this is where the sustaining resource comes in. Top of the mind awareness, you have built trust to where your client thinks about you for everything. In fact, things that you don't even offer, <laughs> but they think, you know, if I call the Geo Group or I call Georgia, I might be able to work into her network or their resources and they can help me. And that's the key to what I'm saying right now. So I'll give an example of that. A client called one time and said, oh, do you offer printing services? Of course, this is before digital, everything was digital, and people printed manuals and things right. like that. Um, and we said, no, we, we don't do that, but here's the name of three trusted sources that we have and the, the sales representatives there that you can call in order to get that done. That's an example of sustaining resource. I'll give you one more. Just recently, one of our clients said, we have a position open for a technical writer. Can you help us? Do you have a network for, for technical writing? And we said, we do have contractors, but if you need somebody on site, 
we are happy to post that job description on LinkedIn and Facebook and on our, you know, client lists and ask for, you know, anybody that knows anybody. And you spread out that net. A client loves this. And then to top it all off, you ask the client, gee, are you a member of the Society of Technical Communicators? And that's STC because we always have to use the acronyms. Of course. And they said no. And I don't know. Do you know STC? I'm familiar with them, yeah. Yeah. The, the technical writers, yeah. Exactly. So all of a sudden, we are now a sustaining resource with that top-of-the-mind awareness where your client says, you know, I need this, and, and I need help with this, and I'm going to call, you know, the geo group. So from what I understand, what you're saying is that you need to position yourself or get the client's trust to a degree that you become their go-to expert for everything related to language and, and around it. Yes, we we kind of shy away from the word expert, but we will use the word specialist. Specialist, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I see that so, point. Yeah, so we enable trust and, um, you know, continuing uh, improvements with the clients on, on their side. Uh, they have confidence in us, and um, it just has really worked well for us. Again, it goes back to, you know, having uh, clients that your customers can't, your, your competition can't steal. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely, absolutely. Yep. I understand that. Uh, let me ask you this, Georgia, account management, which is basically dealing with clients that you have a relationship with uh, uh, at this point, is not discussed at length uh, in our industry. What is account manage management and what is the job of an account manager uh, from your perspective? Um, I'm not sure if the audience knows this, but our two research firms in the language services industry have done extensive research on account management. In fact, one of the documents I have on my desk is a 96-page document all about account management. Because I think in the old days, we had salespeople and we had project managers, and they worked together. Until, right. yeah, until... Um, the industry grew to a point where there, the salespeople couldn't be bogged down with all of the details with the client because they were supposed to go out and they were supposed to, um, you know, get new business. So account management came in view and it's really widely discussed. I'm not surprised that you asked about that because it is widely discussed in our, our industry. So, um, you know, account managers are a uh, cross between a salesperson and a project manager. So, for example, an account, here we go with our lists again, an account manager should be a good listener, intuitive to business sense, flexible, detail-oriented, I only have a few more, friendly personality. Right confident, have a good work ethic, be a great troubleshooter, and be self-motivated with some sales skills. Now, when I said that this is a, a cross between the salesperson and the PM, I consider one, two, three, four, five, six of these to be project management skills. And you you know what they are. The people listening all know the, you know. Of course. 
detail-oriented. But to me, the most important trait, and I identified three of them out of this list, was number one, a friendly personality. Because people buy from people they like. And so the account manager should be able to write emails and place phone calls in a style where the client doesn't mind that they're calling and contacting them. So the personality of the account manager is so, so important. The second one I put down was self-motivation and some sales skills. Now, be very careful about the word sales. Sales has a very, very, very negative connotations because of global sales, selling everything from cars to, you know, online makeup and clothing. But so so AMs will sometimes shy away from that when you say sales skills, but they need to be self-motivated to um, to have customer service skills. And so if you can just mix those two words together, you'll find that they'll be very open and very successful uh, to an AM job if if they just know some selling techniques. And I think you and I are going to talk about that in a minute. And then the, the last one is intuitive business sense. I'm not sure that a PM needs to know that, but an account executive really needs to know that because you ask questions to your corporate clients How are you going to grow? What products are you introducing? Are you going to export? And how is that going to affect your staff? Are you adding new people? Um, And then you look for research. What press release has come out lately? Did you have a merger or an acquisition? Because the account manager's job is to grow existing accounts. And it's that intuitive business sense that helps them ask the right questions to progress that along. Georgia, that was an incredibly <laughs> well-defined answer. <laughs> well, I used the research from our, our language services, you know, research firms, and it's worth every penny that we spend. Absolutely, absolutely. I can't uh, agree with you more on that. But you just mentioned something that in terms of the sales skills. Um, and how sales has a negative connotation. But how do you define an account manager being different from a salesperson? So the role of the salesperson is to acquire new business. And they should avoid as many non-sales tasks as possible. That could be a shift for a lot of agencies listening today because the salespeople may do, you know, be multifunction. But really, the difference, the, the question you asked is, you know, what are the characteristics? What's the difference? An account executive, a salesperson should just go out and get new business. Your project manager, I'm sorry, yeah, your project manager, um, they, they develop the proposals and the quotes and they execute the projects. I think most of us all know because we have project managers on staff. And then in the middle is the account manager and they grow the existing business. So I, if you think about this in a linear term, the account executive goes out, they get brand new business. They nurture that business and have a staff of project managers or account managers that work with them to develop a team. But then that account manager lets go of the account. I mean, I'm sorry, the salesperson 
transfers that account over to the account manager. And that's the person that grows that business. If that transition doesn't happen, your salesperson is not going to increase business like you want them to. Right. So if, if I understand correctly, a salesperson's job is to grow the business vertically and an account manager actually takes that existing business and grows horizontally within uh, other departments of that client or you know, offering additional services to them and so forth. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Uh, well, I'm glad I understood that. Uh, I've heard this in so many places that it is a lot easier to get business from your existing clients uh, than, than getting it from new clients or going after new clients. How do you do that? Can you put that in, into perspective for me? Yeah, sometimes it's very hard to not use our company as an example. But if you look in our customer management um, software, our CRM, you'll find that some of our accounts that we've had for 20 to 25 years, they have 40 different contacts in a large corporation. So how do we do that? Um, we can ask about, um, you know, getting business from the existing accounts. We'll ask them about adding languages. Are you expanding into new markets? Are you putting new languages on your website? We can add new languages and the account can grow that way. The second thing is to add new revenue by category. So your account manager can say, you know, with COVID, um, did you know that there is a product called RSI, Remote Simultaneous? It's the hottest thing going for communications with virtual meetings. And they can sell another product that you have. Or they can talk about um, sign language and the laws in New York that have mandated that sign language be used for all government meetings. So things like that, they can increase revenue by category, and then they can increase revenue by client products. So for example, one of our, um, we went on a website and we said, look, we understand that you are uh, offering a new hot water tap. Mm -hmm. How are you going to launch that? When is it going to be available to the public? Is it going to, this goes back to the business sense again that we just talked about. Right. What are those questions that you have to ask to increase business by getting all of the global work that comes along with that? Um, and then the other way that you can increase your business is by different departments. And this goes back to the 40 people in one company. If you're working with technical engineers on technical manuals, how does the marketing department get involved with that? And do they need anything? And what about training? Do you have to train the end user on how to use the product that the engineer is creating? And then you can ask, wow, we haven't seen any new products this year. Will the product that we translated the manual for last year, will you have software updates or any kind of updates to the actual product that we might be able to translate? So even if you're translating, um, you know, revisions, it's better than nothing. Um, and interpreting too, the laws have changed. There's mandates now. Um, there was a full podcast on that too. Those laws you can take to your client and say, did you happen to know? And this is how it affects interpreting. And this is how we can help you. So then we get to the fifth way that you can um, increase. 
And that would be by referrals. Referrals within the company is just what I described. Is there anybody in HR that needs our services? Corporate communications, training, um, you know, the list goes on and on. We've done some legal. We're not thrilled about that. But when it's for a client and, you know, it's, it's a client legal document, we, we, you know, we work through that, even though because legal is not a vertical of ours. But different departments, you get referrals within the company. And then the other, the sixth one is referrals from out of the company. Here we go with the questions again for the account manager. Is there anyone in your supply chain that might need language services? I'm happy to call on them. And the other thing is what trade shows do you attend? Which of course now virtual trade shows, I think is the way to go until we all get back on our feet. Um, <laughs> I know, but you know, clients are very impressed when the vendors, language service companies, support them at their industry because they usually have a booth there. And so you walk around and you say, oh, why are you here? It's like, well, my clients are here and we want to see them interact. We want to see their booth. We want to see our translations in their brochures right. and so if you go to those trade shows and um you know that's the other thing and mergers and acquisitions we have a client who just purchased another company now we have to figure out how to merge tms and to make sure that they grow with us because i know they had a preferred vendor on the other you know the other side um so and then of course the most um the most obvious way to get business is to join associations. And there's ALC and ATA and Loke World and ATC and ELIA and GALA. And you can increase business that way too. Um, but that's more to get business from, you know, your peers. Where the first six items that I mentioned suggest adding new languages, increase revenue by category, um, big uh, clients, if they have new product lines, current projects needing any changes, referrals within and referrals without. Those are probably how you have your account managers increase business. Uh, understood. And, and how do you determine what keeps a client happy? I'm assuming it is different for every client, but is there a common denominator? This was one that I really thought about, and I put this on my computer just for us today. Um, I agree with you. Yes, every client is different, but there is one common denominator, and that is to be sensitive to their needs. No matter the client and how different they are, you have to be sensitive to their needs. Um, your client wants you to do it. A good job they want to do a good job for their company so their successes are really your successes as a supplier as a language service vendor um, any errors to them can cause them pain and embarrassment and missing deadlines we know how painful that is um, and 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 so I would say you know that the common denominator denominator is to be sensitive to your clients' needs because when they look good to their boss, then you um, secure that relationship. Understood, Georgia. Please tell us where does customer service start? 
Is it a thought process that starts with the leadership or is it just answering emails on time? Uh, I, I think we are confused about that concept. It would be interesting the next time we get together for an ALC meeting to find out how different my views are from other people. Because to <laughs> I know, I know. To me, customer starts uh, customer service starts with me. It starts with the owner of the company. And so you the way you do that is you should know every single client on your list and you should meet them somehow by phone or in person. And now virtual makes it very, very easy. And you start by explaining to that client what they should expect from this relationship. Here's what we are going to do. Here's what we're going to provide. This is what you should expect. And then you look them in the eye and you say, I am totally responsible for every action from start to finish in this relationship. And that if there's any concerns or cries of joy, actually, because uh, we like to hear the happy news, that of course. I'm, I'm the person who they should call. Sometimes I give out my cell phone number. I try not to do that, you know, too often, <laughs> but give your contact information and offer to attend high-level meetings and offer to attend planning meetings and then offer the private meetings in case there's something that's not going according to your contract or your relationship. So if there's something uncomfortable between the two teams, your client and your team, offer that private meeting to say, I'm here to listen to you and we'll fix it, you know, anything that needs to be fixed. So I hope that the listeners are thinking the way I think, but I, I think it starts with me and starts with you. Starts so, with so basically you want to embed customer service or that philosophy uh, pretty much everywhere within your organization. And it starts with the leadership thinking uh, about customer service. Yes, definitely so. Okay, so... And that actually makes sense because uh, a lot of us think that customer service is just a function, but it actually is not. It's a philosophy. Um, uh, let me actually go back to another question I have for you. Because we have such a limited pool of resources and time, it would be hard to focus equally on all clients at the same time. Uh, Georgia, how do you prioritize which clients should be attended to first? Do you have a client segmentation process? Um, again, I'm going to refer back to industry research since we buy it and we live it. Uh, but there are a few things that we uh, use for prioritizing um, who gets what attention, how much attention, who deserves attention. So one of them is by account size. We know who our 20 top accounts are. We know how much they spend. And we have a good feeling about the relationship that we have with them. The second thing is sales potential. And this comes from your account manager. If you have an account that goes to an account manager, you have to have discussions to say, gee, have we tapped out this client or is there uh, sales potential? And you can judge the amount of uh, attention that you give based on that also. Then there's the relationship type. So there's peer-to-peer -peer communications. And we talked a lot about that. Um, any need for custom solutions. Here's one that is very, uh, you have to be very invested into this. It takes um, 
I, I call it high maintenance. But if you have a client that has a lot of custom solutions, you're going to have to prioritize that one a little bit higher than the others because they're going to need attention to make sure that you're not only uh, providing solutions for today, but also providing solutions as they grow into the future. The next one is account status. We keep track of our accounts uh, online for every three years. And we look, is this account in sales trending upwards? Are they spending more or are they trending downwards? And are they, you know, for some reason, uh, not spending so much? And then you can prioritize that way. And then the last one is profitability. For all companies who work with QuickBooks or Peachtree or uh, some of our language technology tools now that give you reports about profit and loss, your account managers and your project managers should have profit goals. And so the owner of the company goes into your accounting software and looks, my husband used to look at every single project and we process mm -hmm. over 200 projects in a year and he would look at profit and loss. And if it did not meet our criteria, he would bring in the manager from that department to say, what, what happened here? Did we sell low? Did we buy high? What Did we make a mistake? What happened? So the profitability is one that is a criteria for how an account deserves attention. Okay. And uh, so uh, in order to keep clients happy and, and keep coming back to you, you need to invest time um, and energy, as you said. Some, some clients will not be happy no matter what you do for them. Is it a matter of bad fit or does it mean you are not doing enough? Um... That's a very good question. Um, those relationships are always painful. <laughs> to say the but, least. <laughs> yes. To keep our staff healthy um, as the owner of the relationship, we determine if we should end the relationship with the client. Because if your employees aren't happy, your clients are not happy, if the in, if the clients are not making the employees happy, uh, that could be pretty dangerous. So if we want to keep a happy staff and we have a client where we just can't do enough to make them happy, we'll end that relationship. Um, one good example is we recently had to fire a client because we kept losing proposals on price. So the poor AE and PM and AM, they're developing proposals and this and that and, you know, breakouts and hourly rates and per word rates. And we never, ever got that. And it was very um, depressing for all of them. And so we just said, you know what, we, we can't do this anymore. We are sorry that we have to stop working with you, but price is an issue. And, you know, it's just, we can't be a strong financial partner for you if we lower our rates even more than we keep lowering them because we've lowered them twice um, during this whole thing and could never win this project over the competitors. So, um, you know, that, that's, that's where we just, we just couldn't make them happy. And price was the reason why you also have to know the reason uh, why you're not making them happy or why, or, or if like you said, are they ever going to be happy? 
So we did have another unhappy client where the maturity, uh, they grew out of our range and they needed big technology and they needed services we didn't offer. And we were sorry to say goodbye, but um, again, they're moving on and you have to really be aware of how your staff is feeling about that and include them in those decisions. So did that answer your question about some clients absolutely. will never be happy? Absolutely, absolutely did. Uh, let's discuss the role of frontline staff like uh, project managers and account managers versus that of senior leadership. What affects uh, clients, uh, which one of these affect the client satisfaction more? I like this question because uh, customer service is measurable. I used to think in the old days that was never measurable, but it is really measurable. Right. And we send out a survey to our clients three days after every project delivery. And we ask three simple questions. They get to check the boxes, you know, on time and all that. And then we have a comment section. And in the comment section, clients will write the names of the team members. It's the frontline staff that really is in charge of your successful customer service. So when they say, I'm just going to make up names, Roberta and Paul, you know, did a great job delivering on time. Or Cynthia and Heather, they delivered one day early. Or, you know, Mark and your desktop publishing department took a very, you know, tough manual and and simplified it for us and when they put those names in there that tells us the answer to your question which is is customer satisfaction you know the frontline workers the answer is yes right because they are the ones that the clients experience firsthand versus other people giving them the word yes it's day-to-day -day and peer-to-peer -peer communications Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Georgia, uh, a lot of people think, uh, and we talked about it briefly earlier because you lost a client uh, due to this, they think that low pricing or something like that, lowballing basically, would make clients happy. Do you think it is the case? Do you think that providing a, a cheap service is what the clients are looking for? Well, I always love this question because everybody likes a sale. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody likes low pricing no matter what. But the way I answer this question is that the large companies have formal procurement departments. And so they get paid to save money. Price is, you know, their evaluation as an employee at the large company. So for them, you know, the answer is yes, they're very, very happy. Uh, negotiating a, a low Price makes them look good. But then when you get to medium and small type corporations and companies, sometimes nonprofits and service organizations, they consider quality, especially if, if they're new buyers where they don't know what is quality or they don't have client reviewers, you know, all of a sudden they're, they're very concerned about quality. And then reliability. I could say, oh, cross the board, every client, you know, needs reliability because they have responses, you know, and they're, they're responsible to somebody on their end. Um, and unique needs, meeting unique needs and turnaround times. To me, those are more important than the price. And you can work together better with small and medium-sized companies. 
So in our sales department, we actually have a criteria. What does our uh, ideal client look like? And we right. have size and you have vertical and, you know, all those good things um, because those big, large globals, that that's just not in the field where we play and price is very, very important there. But I would say that this two prong answer would be that sales is less important because of quality, reliability and some unique needs and turnaround time that a client might have in a medium to small company. Would you say, Georgia, that clients value trust, keeping your word and being there for them when you when they need you? You know, trust is a, a security blanket. That is trust is a security blanket for your clients. I mean, they're very appreciative when um, you have a task and you mm -hmm. perform that task. And when sometimes they get put in a bind where somebody says, oh, my God, I need this tomorrow. And they come to you and they say, oh, my gosh, I need this tomorrow. And you say, OK, great, we can perform a miracle. And the client relationship, if it is a mature relationship, they'll have trust and they know that you're going to get it to them tomorrow. So, yes, yes, yes. Clients value trust, especially with mature relationships. So for them, it's important that they could count on you. Yes. You know, as I rethink that answer, I have to think that, um, you know, people who buy translation services for the very first time, there's a, um, they have to build that trust. They're usually afraid, you know, did I pick the right company? Um, is the interpreter going to show up on time? Um, you know, so they are trusting you to do that. But I think that the trust you're asking me about is some that is developed during a long-term relationship. If you had a choice between spending the same amount of funds on, on new sales or account management, uh, Georgia, where would you invest and why? Again, this is a question that has changed over time. So it goes back to what you had mentioned about what things have changed in the industry. Right. Oh my goodness. This question, what has changed in personnel from, you know, sales to um, account management? So it's a tough question. Uh, we used to have six salespeople in three Midwest states. Those, I think those were the good old days. Um, we invested in salespeople, but, you know, you really have to back that up with an investment in sales training to make that work. So adding account managers today is a better option for language service companies because it's hard to find successful salespeople. You could go through them like crazy. We're, this is a tough industry that we're in. Um, it's hard to learn. And unless somebody has like, a well, look at the things you have to learn. Linguistics, desktop publishing, uh, audio, video, website, IT, content management, machine translation, localization. That is very difficult for a professional salesperson to take in. So right. now that the account management is a thing, you see my quotation marks? I go, of it's, course. A <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. Um, in a competitive landscape, I would say that um, an account manager, it would be the way to go uh, because of the, you know, um, digital marketing plays a big role in that and that's changed. So my answer in 2021 
is account manager. That's a very good point. And you you brought up uh, something interesting that uh, for in order to maintain a healthy sales organization, you need to back it up with proper training and I guess guidance, which is lacking in most organizations these days. So talk to me about how do you do that in your organization? Uh, basically, what do you do in your company in terms of training your staff uh, for sales and providing them guidance? There's a long-term sales training process that goes on. The first thing you have to train salespeople about the services that you offer. And again, you when you are a full service language company, um, you know, you have a lot of products to go through. And then you have the associations, what associations will help you learn. Then the next training that you go to is professional sales training. And our industry has at least, I can think of three people off the top of my head who provide sales training dedicated to the localization industry and translation industry. I don't know how this affects interpreting because our salespeople go to those trainings. Then you have ongoing training. Ongoing training starts out as weekly sales meeting, but now our, our salespeople are mature in our company that we can go every other week. And that's a lot of, um, you know, detail about how, how do you manage your account list? And it's about growing your accounts, just like a, an account manager. Who should you be looking at for prospects and all that? So those are the weekly sales meetings. Um, and then, of course, you have your individual sales meetings. Those sales meetings um, um, really are between like me and the salesperson, and we review the stats. And no matter what you have as an evaluation for your salespeople, the bottom line number is really what counts. Are you making your sales goal or are you not? And if you're not, why not? And if not, what, how can I help you? How can I help you? So we're very fortunate that my husband and I have sales careers and we were salespeople first. And with the ALC, when the, the we started up 20 years ago, um, a lot of people were just so fascinated about sales because they were either linguists or business people in other land, you know, other service organizations, and they didn't know about sales. And it was a joy to actually share the sales training that we put together for our staff. That, that's such a brilliant uh, idea. And and today, actually, we are still struggling with sales. We don't really have a proper formal sales process in, in our industry. I know we have some great sales uh, trainers out there, um, but I think there's a lot more needed. Uh, let's get back to customer service. Now, the term customer experience is uh, highly used in, in other industries, but we don't hear that often in, in the translation localization industry. Georgia, what is it and how can it help us achieve customer satisfaction? Well, this will be one of my shorter answers. Are you excited about that? A hundred percent. Well, customer experience is a feeling and customer service is an action. So customer experience directly relates to the end customer, okay? 
It's how did that customer feel after you delivered their project? How did that customer feel after the interpreter left? Um, so that's a customer experience where the customer service is on our side, which we say, how well did our account manager perform that task? How well did the account manager um, you know, work with the project manager to deliver on time? And so that's how I make this a very short answer is that customer experience is a feeling, customer service is an action. And I think that the localization and translation interpreting industry doesn't use customer experience that much because our products and services are going to someone who's then, you know, we're like a third, third party. Do you know what I mean by that? Right, right. So our clients are usually not the end customer. It goes to our client's customer. So that's why I think that customer experience is not used in our industry that much. Is it because we are in a B2B type environment and we uh, place less importance on, on, on the satisfaction of clients or to gauge it? Uh, we're business to business and, you know, can you use customer experience with your customer? Sure you can. But um, I just don't think the localization and translation and interpreting industries um, view it that way because like you said, we're business to business. But that's changing, though. Do you think that they will prefer working with a company that makes them feel better versus another one that offers the same service but treats them generically? Yeah, that goes back to customer um, relationships. And I'm thinking about relationships that our account managers have with their list of clients, and they're almost like friends. When you read the emails and see the correspondence, um, the relationship has progressed to the point where we're talking about personal things. You know, how's your mom's health? Did your college-age daughter go to school or, you know, are you an empty nester or is she virtual at home? You know, so I think to answer your question about that customer experience, your customers will feel a good experience when the relationship builds to that personal level. Right. It's customer service at first, because when you have a new client, this is a job. They have a job to get done. They're giving it to you. You take that and satisfy that need or, you know, perform that service and get it back to them. So it's just very, you know, mechanical. But the customer experience can be a B2B customer. Oh, B2B to be customer experience when you get to a relationship where it gets to be a personal on a personal level. Because you would ask, how do I feel about that person? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, given the very international and globalized nature of our business, we, we deal with customers from all over the world, uh, as you may have experienced. How does customer satisfaction vary from one place to another? You know, I don't have a lot of experience with the global aspect, but I will tell you in the state of Wisconsin, we have a lot of resources about exporting your product. And one book that was written here from by a gentleman in Wisconsin and that I read uh, that makes a lot of sense is that there are relationship-based countries and they are more willing to communicate with you, to let you know 
um, you know, what they expect from customer service and their satisfaction levels are higher because the, the tension around uh, the relationship is, is not the relationship. It's around, you know, the business. Now, business-based companies like the U.S., wow, we need data, we need metrics, we need annual reports. How much money did the client spend? How much did they save with uh, translation memory? How many languages did we do? And you, you know, just keep uh, giving that. And you really have to be a trusted employee, um, you know, for, for customer satisfaction. Uh, but I think corporate culture has a lot to do with, um, you know, meeting customer satisfaction needs. Like I said, I don't have that much. Um, I don't really have that much experience in this area. Okay. So um, let's let's talk about how we as, um, as buyers of translation feel. Uh, being on the client side, uh, client side of a relationship with a translator or an interpreter, what is your expectation as a client to be satisfied? What is not? Uh, w- what is happening right now that's not meeting uh, your satisfaction in general today? That that uh, our, our resources can can improve on. Meeting the needs of a language service company is just right. doing what you say you're going to do. I'm going to translate these many words at this timeline and at this price. And, you know, quality again is subjective. I always hesitate to put that in, but then we have the interpreting side also, which did the person show, I mean, there are certain expectations. One of the things I like about ATA is that they have, you know, um, they have those uh, statements of ethics and all of this stuff, which really guides the interpreter as to what's expected from the moment they leave their home or their office to the moment that they get back. And so as a buyer of translation services, we just need to have the trust that the suppliers will do what they said that they're going to do or agreed upon doing. And that's really it. I mean, we don't expect too much more. Okay. And uh, I guess, you know, it comes down to um, delivering what's expected of them and standing by their product, which is the translation in case they need to defend it um, if, if the client has any issues or concerns with that. Many years ago, when a client would come back and say, this is a terrible translation, I and the actually the whole company would freak out. Oh, my gosh, this is bad. Nobody in the company speaks that language. How are we going to, you know, take care of this? You send it to another translator and you get an evaluation. And I tell the second translator, just tell me, does, is this a true and accurate translation to the best of your ability? Does it convey the meaning of the English or not? Because there is an embarrassment factor and a quality professionalism factor that you know you don't want to be damaging resources that you have on maybe one issue or you find out if it's a reoccurring issue and that way you can judge whether or not the professional who did the original translation should be in your database or not and then you have client review and then of course now by ISO certification our company is required to provide editing so we're everyone, I think, 
the buyer side and the seller side tries to minimize any errors with the tools that we have. Okay. Uh, Georgia, if you had a single piece of advice to share with our executive colleagues in this industry, what would that be? The single most important piece of advice that I would give to a company owner is to keep on top of your business, of the paperwork. And it's all of the mundane things that usually business owners do not like to do. Or in my case, I don't have the skill to do it. But it, keeping in touch with financials and keeping in touch with requirements, um, contracts, and all of those things. Because business owners are primarily very energetic, enthusiastic, hardworking uh, people. And they like other people. They're usually assertive um, you know, well, you can tell by going to ALC meetings and everything there, there's nobody there that's shy, <laughs> but we all have to force ourselves to stay on top of government changes. And like I said, contracts and, and paperwork, and especially in sales, focus on the sales numbers as a part of that business that I'm talking about, because if we don't have sales coming in, there's nothing really to pay out. And we have so many resources available to us now about sales and how to hire salespeople, sales training. We talked about that earlier. That's a very valuable piece of, of this um, audio program. Of course. Yep. The research firms, uh, they're invaluable. And I, although I said, I think they're very, very expensive for companies our size. Um, I, I just can't tell you that they're very valuable in, in, ver in different areas and sales is one of them. So that's my advice to sales owners is please make sure that you take care of all of the paperwork that goes along with being um, a business owner. And if you do that, everything else will fall into place. Georgia, you have shared some incredible insights on account management, and I'm pretty sure our colleagues in the industry appreciate learning from your experiences. At the end, the goal of this podcast is to educate and solve problems. And hopefully we have been able to help at least one person with, with their business today. With that, I want to thank you for your time and look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you so much. This was fun. As you heard, finding clients is a lot harder than keeping your current ones. Georgia provided a very transparent view of how client account management should work in a language company. Your clients are doing business with you because they like something about your business. If you give them more of what they like and the way they like to be treated, it is only natural for your business to grow with them. Essentially, all of us have been performing account management, but the roles have not been clear in the past. I believe that working closely with your clients to find how to improve the quality of your service and to find solutions for their problems as a trusted advisor works wonders in improving business with your existing clients. That's all for today. I really enjoyed speaking with Georgia. I want to thank her for her candid views as well as her contribution to our industry in particular through the Association of Language Companies where she has been a founding member and continues to be an active member since the very beginning. I have learned a great deal today from George, and if you are able to take one thing with you from listening to this conversation, then my objective is met. 
Don't forget to subscribe to the Translation Company Talk Podcast on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your platform of choice. Give us a thumbs up and rate this podcast in order to give us a boost in morale and promotions. Keep your feedback and comments coming. I really look forward to them. Until next time. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe and stay tuned for our next episode.